we're dealing with what knowledge counts, what research counts, what scholarship counts. And as Indigenous people coming into the academy, we're still having to say our knowledge that is based on Indigenous philosophy, Indigenous ways, Indigenous practices, that that is legitimate, it has been here before settlers have been here, and it counts, and it matters, and it deserves to be here. There's so much labor that is expected of us as Indigenous scholars, Indigenous students, Indigenous staff. What does it mean to have good relationships in these spaces? What does it mean to be authentic to who you are in these spaces? We're creating our space, we're holding it, and we're doing it our way. Welcome to Walking in Relations, Indigenous Paths Through Education. Within Indigenous communities, education has always been a community role and responsibility. Our interconnectedness and relationship to each other, to the land, to the waterways, the human, and the more than human, is what makes Indigenous communities whole. This gives us a holistic framework of how education could be if we shifted our gaze away from the Western colonial worldview. This concept of being together as one, learning from each other, is core to the understanding of Indigenous worldview. By pausing, listening, and reflecting on our surroundings, we will be able to start to understand how much colonialism has taken away from all of us, not just Indigenous people, but all of us. We are inviting you to sit with us as we speak to Indigenous educators as they share their understandings and perspectives about education. I'm inviting you to open up your heart and your mind to leave stereotypes and judgments at the door. This work is asking you to be a witness and a participant in the hopes that we can shift your understandings of what education could be. Wichach. Hakskwal Tanoyap, Carolyn Roberts, Quinnensna. Welcome. Uh, we are here today at SFU, and it is an honor to be sitting around the table with some of my favorite people. I have been reading their work since doing my master's work, and their voices have not only guided my work and my writing, um, they've also guided me through sitting together in circle and conversations. And I remember the first time I met Dr. Michelle Pigeon in person here at SFU. I totally had a fangirl moment. And I'm like, oh, you're the Michelle Pigeon. <laughs> and Margaret, I, I might be having that moment right now with you. <laughs> it's such an honor to, to work alongside um, both of you in the work that you're doing. So I'm so happy to have you here today. Michelle, would you like to introduce yourself for us? Sure. Um, my name's Michelle Pigeon. I'm of Mi'kmaq and Settler Ancestries, originally from Newfoundland. And I am currently the Associate Dean Indigeneity in the Faculty of Ed at SFU, and I hold the name Aksanaxtzoknawasnatis, um, which was gifted to us by the Squamish and Musqueam Nations um, to hold the role in good ways and the work in good ways. So that's a little bit about me. Thank you, Michelle. Also sitting around our table today is Dr. Margaret Kovach. Her new book, Indigenous Methodologies, just hit the shelves this year, and I have not been able to put it down. It has been critical reading for myself as a doctoral student. It is such an honor to have you here with us, Margaret, and I'll just pass it over to you to introduce yourself. Well, thank you, Carolyn. My name is Margaret, but I do go by Maggie, so feel free to call me Maggie in our conversations. So Maggie Kovach, and I'm Nahio and Soto from Treaty 4 Territory. And um, I'm currently uh, living and working on beautiful Musqueam Territory out at UBC, but I just want to take a, the time to acknowledge the Squamish Musqueam, the Salo Tooth, and the Coquitlam peoples. And I'm just delighted 
excited to be up here at SFU to visit Michelle. Um, have had the just delight to um, have Michelle as a, a peer and a friend for a number of years. So it's been wonderful. And um, I am also the Associate Dean, Associate Dean um, at the Office of Indigenous Education at UBC. And um, I am a prof in the Department of Ed Studies at UBC. I really appreciate, I know how busy you both are, so I appreciate that you took the time to be here with us. <laughs> you've both been in academic spaces for a few years now. Michelle, you've written about how academic spaces are uncomfortable spaces to be for Indigenous students. You've also spoken back to the institutions on how they could change this. And I'm wondering if you could tell me if there has been changes that you've seen over the time that you've been in the institution. We should have recorded our conversation at lunch. We should have, yes. We, we were just reminiscing about some of this stuff, um, mm -hmm. which is great because I think it prepped us for this conversation. I definitely have seen efforts made over the years. Um, you know, if I think about the growth of student, Indigenous student support services in the time frame of the early, late 90s to now, there's definitely been an expansive growth in that field. Um, I think it's a field that continues to be under-resourced and under-supported, and, and there's lots of reasons in that that we can talk about later, but I think the, just the number of Indigenous students coming to our post-secondary institutions has increased, and I think we've seen a shift in who our Indigenous students are in terms of the, the span of generations, the gender fluidity and representation that now comes into our space, and the expectations our students have of us, I think, have also shifted in that, those generations of decades. And I think we have a lot more work to do as post-secondary institutions to respond to the Indigenous community need for relevant, respectful, reciprocal questions. I keep thinking of Verna Kirkness and her words and Marais, like that, those four R's, written all those decades ago are still in the process and I think we have a lot a lot of attention to tend to that work. I agree and I like that you pointed out of the of the students coming and and how we're looking for it to be different within the spaces and being able to use our voices like you have to speak back to say well no we actually have to create the space for us to be. Um, Margaret I'm wondering the same for you and in your journey you've been to a few different institutions so I'm wondering about what you've seen over the years. Well, I, you know, and I, and I reflect back because when you, you had asked Michelle the question, and I have to say I've been reflecting this past week a lot on my experience as an Indigenous woman, an Indigenous student, an Indigenous prof at post-secondary universities. And I started quite young. So I started the University of Regina when I was uh, 18, just going on 19 years old. And since then, um, for the most part, it has been an ongoing relationship and I think when I think back of it I was just um, as as um, Michelle and I were just walking through the library there ha it has been a relationship with a love of knowledge and that is what has always sort of um, kept me here and kept me coming back but as an indigenous person it's not always been easy and I remember uh, as a young a young a young woman and I'm adopted so um, when I started university I was really trying to figure out who I was as an indigenous person and I had only met my natural family when I was 17 years old so it was only a couple of years I had always known that I was Indigenous, but I didn't have that connection. When I went to university, that was when I had an opportunity to really explore. And back then, this was in the 80s, the early 80s, it wasn't easy and there wasn't a lot of Indigenous profs, there wasn't a lot of other Indigenous students around. Mind you, I was going to university at University of Saskatchewan, and so just the demo demographics of Saskatchewan, there were different um, uh, there, there were, you know, sort of um, opportunities for um, both um, Indigenous folks to be coming into the university, but um, it still wasn't a large population. And I just, I just remember that it was, it was a struggle. And so if I kind of fast forward to today, I would say the struggle is different 
but it's still a struggle. Mm. And there are still times when I feel like I'm just wanting to go into the restroom and have a little bit of a good cry because it's still hard. And as a prof in particular, um, I see this with Indigenous students I'm working with and who come into my class, that um, it's still a challenge to try and be who you are in post-secondary institutions. And I think so long as students, Indigenous students who walk into these, these institutions, Indigenous profs, Indigenous staffs, are still feeling like it is a challenge to be who you are. Our work is not done. We've got a lot of work to do, and I think it's different now. Mm -hmm. um, it's more nuanced, it's more complex, but it is equally hard. The mm -hmm. challenges are different, but they're not any less difficult. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm hopeful, but I also recognize we're still, we're still in, we're, you know, sort of the, we're still in the struggle. And I think too, the, the place that we're at, like if we think about the growth of Indigenous faculty positions and, you know, the stat that Cout has around, there's only 1.4% of us across the country. And you were sharing, Maggie, you who were in a session with someone who said, well, we're not, that's not indigenizing the academy, right? Like, and so I think about all the, the spaces that we have created through indigenous programming, and, and Carolyn, you've heard me say this more than once, that we can't build something unless it's sustainable, right? So through courses, through positions that are permanent, through policies, through programs that are sustained funded, that's how we make system change. Um, but in, in that, there's so much labor that is expected of us as Indigenous scholars, Indigenous students, Indigenous staff. And I think we're starting to be in this place of with the TRC of more uh, settler folks wanting to be part of that work with us, walking with us, learning from us, and yet we still have to be the ones carrying the burden of most of that work. And so I think that's where the struggle is a little bit in terms of having a vision of where we know we need to be, building that capacity up, sustaining it so people aren't burnt out and leave the academy, which we're seeing in droves, especially after a pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and how, and that, that, so that's the nuances I think, yeah. you know, Maggie's kind of alluding to, like the complexity of how we navigate that. And then what are we building, right? Like, and I think that's the other part, like I've heard folks say over the years, we don't know what, what you want. <laughs> And I'm like, well, I don't know if we know what we want yet, but we know we don't want this. Yeah. So can we just change this for now and then see where where that takes us? And I think every time we make a step forward, that vision of what we want for those future generations is a little different. But for me, every time I get asked that question of what, what have I seen change, I said lots have changed, but some things stay the same. Systemic racism is the same. The institutional barriers that face our students, the prejudice against all those pieces, right? The microaggressions, the lateral violence, all those big words that are coming out now and academic speak, but it's basically, it's not a safe place sometimes. And so until I hear student, indigenous students come up to me and say, I had an amazing day today. And I see them cross the stage with pride in who they are as indigenous people with their integrity intact, we haven't gotten to where I think the vision is and that'll change right mm -hmm. and grow I, I love that I love that thought of being able to do that um, in a good way to be able to get there in a good way so that we don't have to continually step into classrooms where there's going to be harm happening mm -hmm. and us being having to endure it in order to get to that space to walk across the stage and another point that I really like when we talk is that we we can build it, but we have to build it as sustainability. And how are we going to then care for the Indigenous people that are coming in? What are the things that are in place? You can create a role, but you, you, if you don't create the safety around the role, then the person might not want to stay because it's not safe enough to be there. 
And I, and I think an area that I've been sort of, um, I've done um, a fair amount of work on, on looking at Indigenous methodologies and what does it mean. So a few years ago, I started sort of thinking about uh, more about how do we support, for example, Indigenous junior faculty, pre-tenure faculty who are coming into the universities. And and I think it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting conversation because when we talk about supporting Indigenous faculty, I think we also have to do a lot of educative work in terms of explaining what that means and why it's so challenging for folks, particularly, say, Indigenous folks mm-hmm. who um, have graduated possibly newly mentioned from their PhD, most likely, coming into a pre-tenure a faculty position. And what is this notion of pre-tenure? Well, pre-tenure means that you have to meet a certain number of criteria. So you have to, you know, sort of publish books you or publish articles, or you have to uh, have really excellent teaching evaluations. I shouldn't say or, it's plus. Plus you, you know, sort of you have to really show that you are a, a promising scholar. And if you don't do that within a certain amount of time, then there is a committee that will look at all of what you've done in the past, you know, sort of five, six years and determine whether it was enough, if it was the right kind of scholarship, whether what you're doing, your research is worthy research and whether you as a scholar are worthy. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get through that kind of adjudication process, you usually get a year and then you're asked to leave. Mm-hmm. So it's really sort of the stakes are really high. And what's happening for many of our our Indigenous scholars who are coming in, having to go through that 10-year process, they're often judged by non-Indigenous people mm-hmm. who have a really sort of clear sense in their own mind of what is worthy scholarship. So there's that whole piece of it. But also as Indigenous scholars, we know that to be able to call ourselves Indigenous scholars, we have that commitment to community. We have an important role in terms of reaching out to that community and making sure that we have credibility and we have that accountability with that community. So we're doing a couple of things. So the reason why I think it's important is we have to ensure that post-secondary institutions have Indigenous professors. It's not that easy. And um, one of the big challenges, and it's very abstract, but it comes concrete really quickly because it can mean a person's job or not, is that we're dealing with what knowledge counts, what research counts, what scholarship counts. And as Indigenous people coming into the academy, we're still having to say our knowledge that is based on indigenous philosophy, indigenous ways, indigenous practices, that that is legitimate, it has been here before settlers have been here, and it counts, and it matters, and it deserves to be here. We're still making that argument, let alone having people at the table who actually know what Indigenous knowledge is or Indigenous practice and culture are all about. So I think a big thing about what we're doing within universities is we have to demystify what are some of the challenges. And as a result, I think if we don't do that, and if we aren't a little bit clearer around what do we practically need to do and what do we culturally in terms of how the university values scholarship, what do we need to do there? Um, and what do we need to do in policy to change policy around, you know, sort of what, what scholarship counts and what doesn't? Those are going to require work in each of the areas. And if we don't do work in each of those areas, I don't know how we're going to indigenize the academy with 1.4, you know, sort of 1.4 indigenous profs are not going to indigenize the academy, as my colleague said. Mm -hmm. And it's not enough to, to try and indigenize the academy on a very kind of off the, you know, sort of side of the desk resourcing. 
I think that's a big issue, and I, I and sometimes I, 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 I'm reluctant to talk about that because it's, it's, you know, what does that mean? Why should we feel for professors? You know, they have a good job, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, but if we don't, if we don't support mm-hmm. Indigenous professors who are particularly new and who are coming in, then I think that we're kind of hooped when it comes to what we're doing here because these universities are, at the end of the day, knowledge centers. That's what they do. Yeah, and I think just to kind of build off that, Maggie, I think the the pieces that I see kind of teasing out, I'm like, oh, okay, that's a moment of institutional change. So when folks are applying for these tenure track jobs, asking the question of how does your tenure and promotion guidelines support Indigenous scholarship? What counts as Indigenous scholarship in your mind as a committee? Test them. See if they know what you're talking about. Um, What's the culture of your faculty that you're hiring into? How supportive, what's the mentoring opportunities available and what does that look like? Um, Thinking about how the the market right now for Indigenous scholars is, is in high demand. And so, but yet getting us in, getting us hired is not the same as retaining us until full professor, right? And so if we have folks getting hired in cluster hires, which we've seen as a model across the country, those models are great. They're only great though if you actually put the supports in to sustain them and have the six that you might hire as a group go through tenure. And if they don't go through tenure, then that cluster model fails because all you're doing is saying, we created the space, but oh, you can't make the cut. And that, to me, is that kind of passive violence that happens of, well, we tried. We tried to help everybody. And it's not about helping. It's about creating the space that's equal to. And so that's where I say, where is it in your collective agreement? Um, And I think about the same kind of conversation that needs to happen for students, recruiting students into our universities and colleges. What is the space we're inviting them into? How safe are our classrooms? Where do they go when they have issues? What, what's the support system wrapped around them? If they had a support system that got them through high school, how is that then being continued into the university or college setting? Um, I think about that the same way for staff. So I mean, I think the conversations we're having, while it might be faculty-based, are really about any Indigenous person coming into a post-secondary institution as a student, faculty, staff, elder, right, that we have these conversations about what does it mean to have good relationships in these spaces? What does it mean to be authentic to who you are in these spaces? And I also say to students too, be cautious about what you bring into these spaces. Not all of our gifts and all of our knowledge are meant to be given away Mm -hmm. in these kinds of spaces. There's a craving for it, for a particular kind of performance of being Indigenous. And I think that kind of sets us up in this dynamic of what counts, what's valued, and then how we make it through the system. And I think that does a lot of us harm in that sense, right? So I think as we come into these spaces, holding close our teachings and holding close who we are to help you stay grounded as an Indigenous person, and then use that to navigate yourself in relationship to others so that you then come in strong and you leave strong. Um, But it's not meant for the commodification of everyone else, right, in that sense. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense, And and I think, Michelle, you've really sort of articulated it for me in a very powerful way in that, you know, sort of there are a number of pieces. It's not just if we if we kind of work in this area, if we, you know, sort of, if we work with professors, then we're gonna solve, you know, sort of the, 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 the very real concern that indigenous students are coming into our spaces and not feeling that they're, they're welcome and they're safe. So we have to do it kind of, we have to, we have to focus on different pieces, but we have to think about it as a unified strategy. Mm-hmm. And we also have to think of it very practically. So, and I, I think, um, you know, certainly I know um, a lot of the, the grander statements give me hope, right? You know, that we want to indigenize academy, that we do want to respond to the calls to action. But when you get down to it, 
to actually respond to the calls to action, to actually indigenize the academy, it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort. And because we're working in a situation where there's a lot of emotions, a lot of people have a lot at stake, and there's a lot of emotional work. So it's, 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 it's very complex. And add into it, it's, it's with Indigenous people, for example, which is different kind of than, you know, sort of Indigenous people um, have a different experience with Canada than if we think of the sort of the, the more general equity, diversity, and inclusion sort of movement, which is, you know, I really uphold, right? But Indigenous people have a particular relationship with Canada. And that puts us also into questions that are going to bring in, in a very big way, politics. It's going to bring in sort of legal questions and and connection with the land. It's going to bring in sort of what has that been history. We think of residential schools. We think of the 60 schools. How has that harmed and impacted our people so that we're still dealing with a lot of uh, trauma? We're, we're still dealing with poverty in our communities. And this has been going on since, you know, sort of settlers have come to Turtle Island. Island. And so we've, we can't also at universities think that we can merge, you know, for example, EDI and Indigenous, you know, sort of um, Indigenization or Indigenous knowledges, Indigenous inclusion, and think we can just kind of, oh, we can, that we can just merge everybody together. Mm-hmm. Because as Indigenous people, we have a very distinct relationship with this turtle island Mm -hmm. you know for me what it comes down to respect Mm -hmm. one of those r's right and i'm not too sure that um we fully figured that one out in the academy yet i Mm -hmm. think we've really got to grapple with what does respect for indigenous people mean Mm -hmm. and it's gonna it's going to it's gonna take resourcing both financial and human capital and social capital, right? Absolutely. I think that there's so many points that, that you've hit upon. And I think some of the some of the things that, that you're talking about is off the side of our desks, the work that we do that we're asked to do, that's not necessarily part of our job, but because we are the indigenous faculty person that we get asked to do that work. And then so where do we where where's 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 the blurry line? <laughs> that, you know, where does, where does that fit in? So I think that's part of the emotional labor that you were both um, speaking about. And then the other, fa- the other piece there too about Indigenous uh, faculty are the ones that are teaching about colonialism and residential schools and all that, and the emotional labor that that puts on Indigenous faculty with students that might not always be there with an open heart and a good mind to do that work and then that pushback right and then the harm that that does can be like to carry that as as you go as faculty members is an untenured faculty members on top of that right one one of the things that we're trying to do with this podcast is to help differentiate what is actually meant by indigenous knowledges and forms of inquiry and education um, could you help bring us into a deeper understanding of the two beautiful bodies of knowledge and inquiry? And where do they begin to become suffocated in their navigation within the Western system? Yeah, my argument is that um, there is really a role and a function in a kind of a a broader way for Indigenous methodologies. And when I think about Indigenous methodologies, I think about it as a research approach that is really based on Indigenous knowledge systems. So based on Indigenous values, Indigenous ways. Why I believe that Indigenous methodologies has a particular role, obviously in research and, and, and how we do research, but in the larger kind of uh, conversation about policy and practice, is that for so long we've been doing research that's really been based on Western systems. And, um, 
you know, and, and in, we talk about Canadian society, if we want to narrow it to Canadian society, we've been doing research. We've too often than not come up with research findings that see Indigenous people as deficit. We reach out to the community. The findings and the programs and the 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 outcomes that are based on those um, those research findings, they don't work, and they're not. They're just not. It's just not jiving, right? And part of I think it's not jiving is because the methodology right at the core is not based on indigenous ways of doing things. So you're kind of just starting from a premise that's already setting you up to go in divergent directions, right? Mm -hmm. With indigenous methodologies, if it's based on indigenous knowledge with a deep respect for community and community involvement and an ethos and use the $10 words in axiology that is of indigeneity, you're kind of setting yourself up in a much better way than to be able to create policy and create um, practices that are going to you know, work and make sense for Indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I kind of say that, you know, if we're looking at research that is, is being conducted in a way where the roots and the foundations are Indigenous, we're going to have, or we, I hope, we would have a better shot at getting policies and practices and outcomes that are going to make a difference in a positive way with Indigenous community. But we're still pretty, you know, Indigenous methodologies, what, about 15 years yeah, been around? Roughly. Yeah, Yeah, so, you know, we're, we're, we're still taking a wait and see because mm -hmm. I think now it's, it's kind of getting an uptake mm -hmm. and you see more Indigenous students uh, particularly graduate students using Indigenous methodologies in their research, Indigenous faculty, but, but we'll see. But from what I get, the feedback that I get, it resonates. Mm -hmm. It resonates because it's Indigenous methodologies and approaches are acknowledging community knowledges, and we've been, you know, we're still here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's been a long journey. Yeah, well, I think I'll just um, kind of go off that what you just said, because I think there's parts of this that, like, I think Indigenous methodologies is always key, mm -hmm. right? And that it's a process. It's not just a one, one part of the research. It's the relationships building up to the question. That might be the inquiry that comes from, the burning sense of something in yourself that you know, oh my God, why is this always a problem? I'm going to understand it better. Or it could be a community-based initiative where they're coming like, we need to figure out our absenteeism in, in our schools. Mm -hmm. Why is that happening? Bring, let's bring, oh, we know someone, we know Carolyn. We're going to bring Carolyn in, right? And then have Carolyn work with the kids and see. So to me, methodologies is the process. It's the relationships that research, the Indigenous researcher has with the communities, whether it's their own community or not, mm -hmm. right? It's how you sustain those relationships and the practices and the protocols in ways that honor that being. And I think it's something that there's nuances in that that I think are important for folks who are kind of taking on this work to pay attention to, the ethical protocols, the relational protocols. Um, and I see ethics as something that expands beyond your REB. <laughs> it goes into just the foundation of the research, who you are as a person um, and where you are in your journey and then how that carries through. And the research project might last a month, it might last 10 years, it might last 100 years, right? Depending on how the, it's set up. And then how, what happens after, right? Like that's the question I have a lot of times when we see folks taking up or working with Indigenous communities, and you're right, Maggie, like there, there is a lot of work happening with Indigenous communities, but it's not happening in an Indigenous way. Mm -hmm. And so how do we help shift those folks who are coming in and doing environmental surveys or doing needs assessments in our schools? How do we make sure that they're taking up Indigenous ways? And if you're non-Indigenous and you're listening to this podcast, there are things for you to learn from an Indigenous methods process that you can attribute back to who you learned them from. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Not co-op to make your own. <laughs> yep. And then say, okay, I've learned this. I've learned that relationships are important. Maggie taught me that. 
So how do I now do that? Linda Smith has taught us it's important to have a seen face. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Right? How do we go into community? How are we present outside the research context? Right? And so, um, and then how do we then think about what happens after the project? Where is our responsibility in supporting the knowledge mobilization, the training, the capacity building, the policy changes, the presentations to council to make those policy changes? Like, if we're in it, we're in it. And we stand by our work and our community with that work to say, this is where we're going. And this is how we can influence that change. Um, And to me, that's the methodologies and the process and the inquiry all kind of interweaving together. That makes it why we're here. Like, that's why we're here to do this kind of stuff that makes those changes that um, are so profoundly needed. And, you know, and, 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 and the challenge, just thinking of the challenge, although I don't want to leave this by, uh, I really want folks to know that I am hopeful. And I do want to acknowledge all the work that's been done. Like, I mean, you know, just having a conversation with Michelle. I'm just so grateful Michelle is here, you know, that we're both here having this conversation. And we wouldn't have had this conversation in the early 80s. You know, like wouldn't even fathom, have dreamed that we could have a conversation like this. So I am really hopeful, but I do know the challenges. And when we're talking about Indigenous research, for example, one of the preparations that... Uh, I know myself, I I have always factored into it. Most people who are doing an Indigenous methodologies will think, how do we get this, how do we get this off on a good way? What ceremony? Mm -hmm. You know, what do we need to do from a very culturally grounded way? Do we need to reach out to elders? Do we need to have a way, do we need to go into a sweat? For example, the last research project, we, we made sure that we organized a sweat just to have the the um, the research, you know, in our minds, in our hearts, in our beings, grounded in an indigeneity. And I think for many non-Indigenous researchers, that sounds very strange. Mm-hmm. That might sound very odd, right? Mm-hmm. And because it's a really, and, and we can get into these conversations about objectivity and subjectivity and, you know, and, and but that is important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, you know, like Sean Wilson's book, I'm thinking, Research is Ceremony, Mm -hmm. right? It is a part of what makes, you know, if we're going to do research in an Indigenous way, Mm -hmm. then we have to do research in an Indigenous way. Mm -hmm. We can't just pick and choose. Mm -hmm. And um, the key thing is when you do do ceremony or when you do, you know, whatever that ceremony looks like, when you do kind of ground yourself um, it, I believe from my own self, and, and I don't know what your thoughts are, but I do think it kind of grounds you in an ethic mm-hmm. of wanting to do things in a good way. And we know with research, ethics are so important, right? Mm-hmm. And so it just helps prepare you. It helps kind of prepare your heart and your mind to go forward. And that's a holistic preparation. Mm-hmm. So it's not just making sure the, you know, sort of the ethics application is signed off and away you go, although we have to do that too, not <laughs> saying we don't, but you know, it, it's, it's, it's a much more holistic way mm-hmm. of how do we prepare ourselves, for example, to do ethical, good research that our communities would, you know, would say, yeah, I can stand by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that preparation and that holistic sense of um, being, I think that's a really good guide for even students, right? Yeah. For our Indigenous students to say, how am I preparing myself for today? How am I entering into this journey coming to post-secondary? Um, how am I w- going into the work world in that same way, right? So we think about how how many teachings we get from having one conversation in one realm, but it actually can apply to how we live in a whole good way in all aspects of our life, right? So these discrete conversations to me are not discrete, they're all connected. Um, And I think that's one of the things that I see powerful in the system change because you're right, Maggie, we wouldn't have this conversation in the 80s. But because of where we are now, I know Maggie and I can say, hey, let's have a chat, Mm -hmm. right? And I know that there's more of us here to have those conversations. And I think that collective 
community building that we can do amongst ourselves in these spaces to support and lift up the work and step away from all the other stuff that happens, <laughs> won't go there, um, is, is the way that I see some of this work really taking a foothold and really making some solid foundations of change in this place, right? So we're, we're creating our space, we're holding it, and we're doing it our way and pushing back on the things that try to impose other ways. Um, and that that's a bit of back and forth and you take one step forward and five steps back yeah. at times, but- Six, seven. Yeah, <laughs> decades. But then you, you move on, right? And you move forward and then, and then you have, you know, our new generation of scholars coming up behind us and we can see the light in their eyes. And I'm like, okay, we gotta keep that light lit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Keep that passion yeah. there. And then, you know, and then they'll turn around and then they'll see the next ones coming behind, right? So I think about that, that piece of it, that intergenerational mentoring of how much space I think Verna and Joanne Archibald yeah. and Jan Hare and Marie Batiste and Lorna Williams, like, you know, all the women who have been in this space yeah. to make those step and inroads. And then, you know, Maggie and I are just one part of that story, right? Yeah. And and that to me is such a powerful place to see like it's not just one person anymore now we've got a collection of us across the country and now that'll create more and i think you know and i think being very mindful about our intentions about what we're willing to create and what we're willing to hold um is important right and uh, growing it for the sake of growing it isn't always a good thing as we were talking about earlier right yeah. having having the sense of where's the sustainability of it for both the things we create, but also for the people involved, right? Mm -hmm. And so either we're thinking about the next generation of mentoring coming up, or we're thinking about how do you keep yourself well <laughs> and balanced and whole in this whole process, right? Um, you know, and especially for our, our grad students who are kind of going through the throes of the, the gauntlet of grad school. Yeah. Like it's, it's a lot, so you gotta it's make sure you take care of yourselves and your well-being. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so many great points again. The relationality, like Sean Wilson, like you were talking about, um, and his, his viewpoint of the relationship with the knowledge, the relationship with the work is like key and critical and important in, in the things that we do, um, which is also relates back to what we were talking with Joanne a couple of days ago, right? Being story work ready, we have to live it and embody it. And if we're allowed that space in these spaces, the spark will stay. The sparkle stay. <laughs> okay, so last question. So for our listeners who are settlers to this land, what are your thoughts about how they can show up as settler educators, settler academics, research administrators? What is it that they can do to walk alongside us, as you, as you always say within your work? How can they help uh, support their Indigenous colleagues to dismantling and rebuilding of the system? Well, I can take a shot at it. Um, one of the things that I would ask for the allies is, as Indigenous people, there's a lot we got to handle right now. I think we talked a lot about what's going on in universities. If you, you know, just try and figure some things out and don't, you know, because sometimes I think it just gets to be that we have to figure out what, it, you know, and it's important to figure out what does it mean to be Indigenous in the academy. And I know that all of that is bound with anti-racism and anti-colonialism. But I think allies have to figure out what does it mean to be allies. Mm -hmm. there, there, there is that whole area of complexity and of richness and of discourse and of discord that I think th that that is in ally turf. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong. You know, maybe I'll change my mind tomorrow. It's a moving, <laughs> it's a moving area, but yeah. you know, that it's a kind of exhausting. Yeah. Just kind of, you know, I don't know. I, I, I get to edit this, so. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't edit that one bit. Um, and, and I think, Maggie, you're right. Like, it is exhausting. And I think part of it is the failure of our education system actually do anything with settler folks that yeah. actually they are in a place of where they actually have the foundation knowledge to come at these conversations with. 
And, and so to me, there's a role education needs to play, right? And we see that happening in some of our disciplines. Um, but I think there's also what you call on is for folks to do their work. Yeah. Do your work. If you don't know, seek out resources. We all have Dr. Google yeah. <laughs> to, to have a hand. And be careful of what you Google. But I think there, there's some sense of, you know, where, where can I learn more? And I think that's the question. How do I make sure I'm not making a mistake? And I said, well, first, you know, and I've heard others say this, we're always going to make mistakes. Yeah. We're all making mistakes in this work, right? Mm-hmm. Indigenous yeah. and settlers. We're all messing yeah. it about at some point. But I think there's something in being able to say, I don't know enough yet, and then being able to say, okay, who can I read? Who can I listen to? Who can I watch? Like the the amount of Indigenous podcasting and what resources out there now for folks to just sit and listen is so good. And I think about Lee Patel's work and who does a lot of work around decolonization and anti-racism stuff. And Lee talks about the pause. Where's the pause for us to say, I don't know enough, so I'm just going to sit and listen, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, what what can I do by watching and listening, and then what can I what, what can I do when I'm invited into the work to help, right? And so if we sit in a circle and we say, "Hey, we need some help with this," anyone, and it's crickets, that's a missed opportunity for allies to support. I think the other places allies can help, and I he- I've heard someone say recently. They don't see themselves as an ally. They see themselves as an accomplice because as a uh, settler, they're in a position of power and influence where they can then say, I'm your accomplice to advance these goals. I'm not an ally. I'm here to really help you make change or help make change on behalf of or with, right? And I think the the way that we speak about walking with, speaking with, not speaking for, like those, the use of those, what are they, prepositions? Something, I don't know. Sorry, English teachers. Um, (laughs) Whatever that word is, I think that to me is really important because that signals how you engage in this work as an ally. And, and, And I think as Indigenous people, we have to see each other as allies too in this work. Like, we are all different nations and all different backgrounds sitting in this table. Um, our universities and post-secondary, our colleges are, are a bound of diverse folks. And so we have our relationships to the, the land-based nations in which our institutions are on. We have our urban indigenous community that's vast and diverse. And then we have our indigenous students and faculty who are also diverse. And so the fact that we think, or we, not we, the institution or society thinks that we're all the same, that homogenization of us is where we get stuck in that part. And I think allies have a role in helping make sure that that diversity and diversity of voices and perspectives is always heard. And then thinking about where can you use your power, place, and privilege to speak with, (laughs) not for, and if you don't know what to say, ask, and then you get told <laughs> what to say. Um, or when you're in these meetings and there's no Indigenous representation at the table because we can't be everywhere, that's part of the exhausting work, then you know enough to say, why aren't we adding Indigenous to this conversation? Where is the Indigenous content in this course curriculum? How does this course or program proposal you know, connect to the indigeneity plan of the university? You know, how is this being resourced? How is it being sustained? At what cost is this going to be happening on our Indigenous colleagues, right? And the more I see that happening, or at tenure and promotion committees, having having those folks that will question why, or having when job ads are being developed, that, you know, I, there's so many different places in our institutions where having folks at the table who will speak for and with us, I think is so vitally important, but also knowing enough to be able to do that, right? So there's that self-education, walking with us in the work, being able to say, sit in circles, right? So if your institution has a governance committee or something like that, that's important to sit at um, and listen and watch. I mean, I learn so much sometimes just sitting and listening um, and I don't have to speak. It's really okay not to speak sometimes. <laughs> better <laughs> but you know and I and I think too I think you know sort of with allies um, they can work with other allies or accomplices like do the anti-racism work mm-hmm. and I think that um, 
as well as speaking about and, and you know, sort of protesting, um, you know, sort of inequities or protesting as well as pro- protesting against anti-racism and, and other oppressions that exist. It's also be it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yep. Just live it. Yep. And, 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 you know, sort of by role modeling it, you create change. So I think we also have to, you know, sort of we have to speak up, we have to be vocal, but we also have to live it. Mm-hmm. And the living it is hard. And I think that's where um, I would say um, if I get exhausted in the conversations about allies, um, I, do, I like the term accomplices, you know, and sort of the question of um, how can we be better or how can we support Indigenous people, well, what does it mean for all of us to live in a world where there is equity, where th- w- in live in a world where we do uphold the values that come from Indigenous peoples of kindness, of compassion, of respect? What does it mean when those values are going to ask us to share power, to share, you know, sort of our own monetary gains, to, to share rather than to to be very individualistic in the way that we approach the world. To have those conversations about not just how do I support Indigenous people, how do I create a world that is more compassionate, that is kinder, where there isn't rampant poverty among those who, you know, sort of live in, 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 in situations where they haven't had the same access to power and wealth. How do I do that? And if they can, you know, if the allies can do a really good job at that, mm-hmm. Indigenous people will do okay. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if the allies can figure out how to live in a world, more compassionate world and act in a way that we get all get there, Indigenous people are, we're going to be much better than we, in a, in a much better place than we are now. So, mm-hmm. yeah beautiful way to end that what do you say after that I don't know (laughs) I I like wow there is so many times that that you've just nailed things that I've been thinking and and just articulated it so beautifully so I am so thankful for both of you that you're doing the work that you're doing because I totally understand how hard it is so my hands are raised in deep appreciation thank you Mm -hmm. thank you for bringing us together this conversation and good luck with the rest of the podcast and the editing (laughs) (laughs) we did pretty good though i thought yeah i thought we did great walking in relation is hosted by carolyn roberts and is produced and edited by calder shivery each episode contains original music by carolyn roberts and jody prosnick featuring tilden webb on piano Jody Prosnick on stand-up bass, Ramona Elke on drum and vocals, and Dante Elke on shakers. Musical engineering by Sheldon Zaharko and Monarch Studios. Special thanks this episode to Dr. Michelle Pigeon and Dr. Maggie Kovach for a beautiful conversation and inviting us in to see what higher education is all about through the eyes of Indigenous women and to Simon Fraser University's Indigenous Digital Media Grant, whose funding helped to support this project. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Take good care, everyone, and we hope that you'll come and listen again. Mm